reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he and his wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink strong he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the holy spirit even from his mother's womb and he will be and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Father, would you bless the reading and the hearing and the receiving of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So we're continuing our Advent series on joy to the world, and hopefully you you could hear in this passage God's desire for his people to be prepared to uh, to receive the joy that, that God has for them in Jesus. Um, and that's what we think about, sort of remember through Advent, but more than that, we're, we're anticipating that joy coming again uh, when, when Jesus is going to make everything new uh, when he returns. Uh, so this morning, I want to look at this encounter between Zechariah and the angel in the temple and how Zechariah was a bit unprepared for that encounter. Uh, he was not planning on seeing an angel. He didn't go into the temple hoping to see an angel. He just thought he was going to go in and do his priestly duty and get out. But God had another plan. Uh, and so how can we be a people prepared? Uh, prepared through John the Baptist, uh, prepared for Jesus, Right? Uh, let's, let's look more at this encounter between Zechariah and the angel. Uh, when, when Zechariah goes in, uh, in verse 12, we see that he was troubled when he saw the angel and fear fell upon him. Uh, didn't have a category for this, didn't know what was going on. Uh, and then the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Um, the angel announces to Zechariah, uh, look, your prayer has been heard. And it may seem like a sort of simple question, but I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway. 
what prayer? Uh, what exactly was the prayer that the Lord has heard that prompted the Lord to send the angel to Zechariah? And the kind of obvious answer, of course, is that Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying, we can assume, for years for a child. Uh, Elizabeth, we're told, is barren. They're both now advanced in years. Uh, they don't have a child. Even though they both live this, you know, these, these righteous lives and you know, they, they obey you know, the commandments and sort of blameless, uh, not perfect, but, but really like full of integrity and consistency, right? And yet, they're, they're still, you know, not experiencing the, the blessing of, of having a child. And, and the angel announces, hey, your prayer has been heard. All of that waiting, all of that longing is coming uh, to fullness. That's great news. But is that, is that the only prayer? Was it that prayer that was heard or was it the prayers of, you know, the people? As, as you see in this passage, there's the time for burning incense is twice daily. It's in the morning and the evening. There would be a, a priest who's chosen by lot, according to this custom, to go in to the holy place, go up to that burning uh, incense altar right immediately in front of the curtain that separates the holy place from the, the holy of holies, uh, and to burn this incense, which is representative of the people's prayers. The prayers are going up at the time of incense. The people are outside praying. What are they praying for? And maybe that's the prayer that's being answered. And if so, how? What, what exactly is the answer to the people's prayer? Well, uh, we kind of get the answer in verses 14 and, and following. The angel tells Zechariah that you will have joy and gladness uh, because of, you know, you're going to have a son, right? But that's not all. Many will rejoice at his birth. Well, who's the many? Well, of course, there's going to be family and immediate friends of, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're going to be happy about this, this baby, but it says many. And that leads us to think that's a much, much bigger group of people. And in fact, we're told that their baby is going to be great before the Lord. In verse 17, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient, of the wis uh, disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people who are prepared. Like the reason why this child is going to bring joy to many is that he's going to prepare them to receive the fullness of God's revelation in the Messiah, in Jesus, who's going to come right after John. And so whose prayer is being heard? You know, Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer or the people's prayer? And, you know, the answer, I hope, is obvious. Well, it's both. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're just, they're just want a baby. They're, they're praying for a baby. Sure, you can have a baby, and, and that's going to bring them joy. And the people are praying for deliverance from their sin, from darkness, from gloom, from tyranny, from the world and its brokenness. And that prayer is being heard too, and, and God's going to provide an answer to that through the baby, through another baby. Um, well, you know, we learn if you have... Luke's gospel open in chapter one. Uh, there, it's not included in, in your bulletin, but if you look down at verse 19, we're told who the angel is. Um, the angel answers Zechariah and says to him, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. 
The angel announces his identity, I'm Gabriel. Um, we know from other places in scripture that there's at least two archangels. There's Gabriel, there's Michael. Um, and he stands in the presence of God. And Zechariah is completely, you know, as we've, as we've seen, unprepared for this encounter. To stand before somebody who is holy, who's, who himself stands in the presence of God. And Zechariah is just, you know, full of fear. We don't know his posture, but we can sort of assume he's even on, on his face in front of this being, um, this, this otherworldly being who he didn't expect and certainly didn't expect this news. And I think it's kind of remarkable that Gabriel says, I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And I want you to think about that reality that Gabriel is telling Zechariah, I was sent. I'm, I'm the spokesperson. I'm the errand person coming with this good news for you. I, there, was, there was a cause and I am the effect. There was a sender and I'm the sendee. And I'm bringing you this good news. And we see it again out in the fields with the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night, how another group of angels was sent to them with the tidings of good news, of great joy that will be for all the people. And then, of course, you've got John as he grows to maturity and takes on his public ministry. And he is sent by God to the people to bring them good news of you know, how they can prepare for the, the Lord's arrival, his kingdom. And then there's Jesus, and he's sent by God, by the Father, to come to his people to announce good news of the kingdom of God. So when you see that consistently, this, this theme of God sending people, God intentionally, purposefully sending folks to, to, to deliberately give this message of good news, what does that tell you about God? What, what, what does that teach us about his heart? That he, you know, is purposeful and plans this and, and sends these emissaries to go and bring good news. Does that come from a heart that's sort of indifferent? Does that come from a heart that is, could care less or is even maybe, you know, mad and angry at, at you and the world and so on? It actually tells us that God is joyful in giving us good news and he's intentional about sharing it and sending you know, these ambassadors to do that. If somebody was to go out of their way to give you good news and to find you and to say, hey, listen to this, you need to hear this, you would think really well of them. It gives us a window into God's heart and it tells us about the one who wants us to be prepared uh, for his kingdom. So, we have to, to, to learn um, what it means to be prepared. How, what, what did it mean to be prepared for John and then what did it mean to be prepared for Jesus? Uh, we're told the, that the angel tells Zechariah that his son will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb there in verse 15. Um, and that's kind of interesting that, that, that John, even in utero, is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It, it gives you a picture of how we are full persons in the womb. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we're doing this ultrasound campaign 
is because we, we want people to have that window into the womb and, and realize, recognize that's a person, not just an embryo, not just you know, a, a fetus, but a person uh, capable of even receiving the Holy Spirit. And we want to help you know, people who are struggling with what do we do in light of this you know, difficult, you know, unexpected, fearful pregnancy. I want them to choose life. And so um, help us to do that. Uh, I think it's really remarkable that, that John has the Holy Spirit even in utero. And in verse 16, we're told that as he grows up, as he, as he takes on his public ministry, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn uh, the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. John's job is to turn people. His ministry is to help people turn. His ministry is, is one of repentance. And in, in Matthew, we get a picture of what his public ministry looks like. You know, who knows how many years later this is, how many decades later, but... But in Matthew 3, we read that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The way that we prepare the way of the Lord is through repentance. And John grew up, God sent him as a prophet. God sent him as a messenger, as an angel, you know, so to speak, to his people, preparing them for the, the kingdom of God. Uh, the word repentance has some baggage to it. And I think we've all heard, you know, the word repent, even if you're brand new to the church, brand new to the Bible, you, you've heard this word before, but whether you've been in church for a long time or just a little bit of time, um, I would not be surprised if you sort of struggle with whether or not the word repentance is melodious or sort of onerous, like I don't know what to think about the word repentance because I think it's generally the case that when we hear that word, we can tend to associate it with people who are angry, uh, Christians who are judgy, uh, people with an ax to grind, you know, telling those terrible people they ought to repent. And we don't always hear it for what it's worth. We don't hear it in its biblical sense, in the beautiful sense in which God intends it, even through the mouth of John the Baptist, when he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven's near. You can get in on this through repentance. Uh, repentance is a fancy word for saying turn. That, that was John's message, right? T to turn people. Uh, and, and we see that again and again uh, in his ministry as people are, are turning. Um, and how is the, this call to repentance beautiful? How, why should we receive this as good news rather than as something sort of harsh or shrill? Well, because it's the invitation to receive the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is unbelievably good news to sinners. Not sinners with a sneer, but sinners with compassion in God's voice. Um, th this is why in Luke 15, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God's 
rejoicing to forgive sin. If you're a sinner, the call to repentance is unbelievably good news to you because guess what? It means that nothing that you've done or, or, or failed to do can keep you from the kingdom of God. That through repentance, you have just as much a right to God's blessings and his approval and his love and his kindness and his acceptance as anybody else apart from anything you've done or failed to do. And it's not up to you. It's not up to your good record or you know, your tarnished record. It doesn't have anything to do with you. And through repentance, the kingdom of God is yours. That's unbelievably good news to those who have failed, to those who have crashed and burned, to those who feel like there's no hope for me. I can't get in on this. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm disqualified. No, you're not. Do you know the only thing that can keep somebody out of heaven? Do you know the only thing that, that makes you excluded from God's kingdom? It's unrepentance. It's a lack of repentance. Repentance is our key. It's our response to God's good news that he has cleared the way, cleared every obstacle for every sinner who wants to come in. You turn. You turn from the world and you say yes to the, the kingdom of God. You say yes to Jesus. And that's why repentance is so beautiful and so, such good news to sinners. And it's why it's such hard news to the successful. It's good news to sinners and hard news to the successful. Why? Because the successful are, well, they're trusting in their record. We're trusting in our works. We're trusting in how successful we've been, whether it's you know, spiritual success or moral success or you know, financial success or relational success or you know, whatever you think it is that, that gives you a head up over everybody else who's crashed and burned. You know, God must, you know, I don't know about them, but God must like me a lot. You know, I've kind of made it. I've done all right for myself. You know, look at me. What do you mean? What do you mean repentance is what gets you in? That's, that's hard news for the successful to swallow because it means that our successes, they don't have any currency in the kingdom. They're worthless. Your successes aren't what earn you a place in God's family. It's his grace that gives us a place in his family. And whether you're successful or whether you're a sinner, we all need the same repentance. Some people need to repent over their failures and some people need to repent over relying on their success. What keeps you out of heaven? A lack of repentance. What sends people to hell? A lack of repentance. It's good news. John is preparing people to receive the good news of the kingdom, that it's grace. And this is joyful. And it's not something that uh, depends on us. Peter picked up John the Baptist's theme in Acts chapter 3. And he's in Jerusalem and he's preaching and he's telling everybody, repent. Repent, therefore, and, and turn, there's that word again, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, 
And that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Is that shrill? Is that judgy? Is that harsh to say repent? That times of refreshing may come to you? That he might send Jesus to you? That you might have joy and forgiveness of sins? Come on. Yeah, I, I know the word gets misused. We need, we need a biblical understanding of the word. It's a beautiful word, and it's our on-ramp to the kingdom. And, uh, and so the people hearing John needed to learn, how do we repent? And they needed to learn how to bear fruit. Um, in Luke 3, as John is an adult, and he's got his public ministry, his message is, hey, bear fruit. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Show your repentance. Demonstrate what it means to turn from sin and self-reliance to God's grace and accept his invitation and his, his blessing, his forgiveness. Uh, that's what it means. It, um, repenting means more than just sort of feeling sorry or feeling ashamed. It, it, it has to mean that, but it's so much more than that. And as the people were learning and trying to figure out what does it mean to repent, they were asking John, um, what then shall we do? Okay, you want us to repent. What does that look like? And John answered them, well, whoever has two tunics, two robes, uh, is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So, okay, that gives us a clue that repentance at least looks like a generosity of spirit, a concern for those who are without. That's a good start. Uh, and then we're told that some tax collectors also came along to be baptized and said to John, teacher, what shall we do? John said to them, hey, collect no more than you are authorized to do. He's telling them these, these tax collectors, those who were sort of viewed as just totally disqualified from the kingdom of God. And he's saying, no, you, you can have the kingdom too. Show your sorrow over the things that you know, everybody hates you for all your embezzlement and, and, and greed. Demonstrate your sorrow over that by being equitable and fair in your work. And then another group comes up to him, this time it's soldiers, and they're asking him, well, what does repentance look like for us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Like, learn contentment, don't be greedy, et cetera. And, and so, I, I, I love that what John is doing is he's making repentance real. Repentance isn't something for Sunday morning alone, even though, yeah, we do that. That's why we have corporate confessions of sin, and you know, we, we tell God we're sorry for our sin and our failures, and we, we want to grow as just image bearers. We do that Sunday mornings, but guess what? Repentance is something we're supposed to be doing all week long as we go to work, as tax collectors or, or as police officers or soldiers, you know, and, and, and so on. And, and John's just making it real. Like, show your repentance. Uh, and, and people should, should our, our repentance should be audible. People should hear our repentance. Our, our repentance should be visible. People should see our repentance. So if, if we're kind of going, okay, uh, the on-ramp into the kingdom is repentance and nothing can disqualify you from the kingdom except a lack of repentance, then, then we, ought to, we ought to kind of get our bearings on what exactly does repentance look like? 
Well, it's audible and it's visible. It has fruit. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It bears fruit in that you can hear it and it sounds like this. I'm sorry. That's what it sounds like. And that's a great place to start. Don't, don't stop there, but that it at least starts there. It, it says, hello, uh, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me, right? I, it's, I'm sorry. That's how it starts. And then if you really want to grow in repentance and really make it audible, you start saying things like, please forgive me. I take the burden of this, of this problem that we're having, our relational thing, you know, whatever, I, I'm taking responsibility for it. Please forgive me. And, and then you can say things like, I want to know how my failure affected you. You show that kind of curiosity. Like, tell me what burden I placed on you through my words or my failures or my actions or whatever. How did that hurt you? How did that harm you? And you show that kind of care. And you, and you try to enter in a little more compassion for how our sins affect others. And you make that audible. And then you say things like, I don't want to do that again. Can you help me? Can you show me what change looks like in me? And you start asking those kinds of questions. That's verbal and it makes repentance audible. And then it becomes visible. Because guess what? If the person who says, well, I said I was sorry, <laughs> that's quite, they're kind of not getting it. Um, there's a consistency here. Like the, the repentance is going to be visible. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance means that if we can't see the repentance, then there's a legitimate reason to ask, is it even there in the first place? Like people need to see our repentance from our compulsiveness. People need to see our repentance from our pride. People need to see our repentance from our tempers. People need to see our repentance from our greed, from our defensiveness. You know, you fill in the blank. If you want to know, I don't know what to repent of, just ask people who know you well. What ways, I know this is a hard question, maybe a risky question for you to answer, but I'm asking you humbly and honestly, can you tell me ways that I can grow in my efforts to love you better, to be a better neighbor, better coworker, better classmate, better teammate? Like, make it visible and then show it, you know, or make it audible and then make it visible. And that's how we are preparing ourselves through repentance for what? Why, why would we do this? The world doesn't do this. Why would we do this? It's, it's, it's humbling. It's hard. It can be embarrassing. It can expose us to kind of things that like, we're, 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 we're taking risks. What's the reward? more of Jesus, more joy through him. It ultimately prepares us for Jesus. Jesus came, um, we're told in Mark's gospel, that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus picks right up off of John's sermon 
and says, repent and believe in the gospel, ultimately, we're, we're preparing ourselves for more of Jesus. Um, the author of Hebrews talks about kind of where we're at with Advent. We're, we look back to how he came, and we're looking forward to when he's going to come again. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. Um, what, what I think is, is fantastic in that summary is that, that as you're eagerly waiting for Jesus, uh, that paints a picture of what's going on in that person's, that waiting person's heart. If you're waiting for something, that can, be, that can look like this, you know, you know, or you're bored, like you're just, it's just time consuming and when's so-and-so going to show up? That's, that can be waiting. But what does eagerly waiting look like? They're almost here. They're going to be here any minute. Can you, they're going to be here soon. Like there's, there's joy in that. You're not bored. You're not anxious. You're excited. And so the, the eager anticipation that Hebrews is talking about is our joy in Christ. He's coming. We're going to be with him. He's going to be with us. And the person who experiences that joy is the same person who has experienced the joy of his forgiveness. That the first time he came, you understand that the reason why he came, as Hebrews just told us, is that he came away to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Where we understand that it was what Jesus accomplished on the cross that takes my sin away. Like, beware, don't make repentance the, the thing that saves you. Our repentance doesn't save us. It's, it's our act of recognizing that Jesus is the one who saves us. And he's the one who, who then justifies us. And then as we're making our repentance visible, making our repentance audible, that's, those are kind of the ways that we demonstrate our trust in him. That's how we're making it evident that we're being changed. We're being sanctified. But we're justified through what Jesus has done to take our sins away. And then we realize... I don't have anything hindering me from access to God and from his kingdom, and this is all free, and it's all his grace, and, and I have an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for me that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And man, there's nothing that can condemn me anymore, and I've got God's favor and God's smile, and that sort of lifts you up and helps us enter into more and more of God's joy. Now, what Jesus was preaching was repent and believe in the gospel. We have to believe in Jesus. And that's the dynamic of, of how, um, I probably should have shared this earlier, but um, when you think about repentance, think of it as one side of the same coin, and on the other side is belief. So, you know, John was preaching this message of turning. Turn, turn from this, turn from that. Well, whenever you turn from something, you're inevitably turning toward something else. And that's the other side of this coin. On repentance is, you know, on one side is repentance, you're turning from something. Belief is turning toward Jesus. 
That's, that's what turning to Jesus looks like, is, is trusting in him, relying on him. And you can't have Jesus without turning from the world. You can't have both because turning from the world means you, you're rejecting it and you're turning toward Jesus. And having Jesus means that you're no longer relying and looking to the world for your joy. And so what ends up happening sometimes is that people have this negative impression of repentance if they don't also embrace the other side of this coin. It's, it's belief. And it means that I get Jesus. Yeah, repentance means I'm forsaking these things, but it, in exchange for what? In exchange for something inexpressible and incalculable. So um, Sam Storms, uh, pastor, wrote a little article called The Christian in Repentance. And, and he says that to be quick to repent is not to acquiesce to a life dominated by the consciousness of sin. Like if you just keep thinking about the one side of the coin as what you're turning from, that mean, might kind of reinforce that stereotype that Repentance is just negative and it's just it makes you hunker down on guilt and shame. But if you remember the other side of the coin, that turns you to Jesus. And there's no guilt and there's no shame in his presence. And so that's where the joy comes from. Uh, Sam goes on to say that we must be conscious of our sin precisely so that the forgiving, renewing, refreshing reality of God's grace can control, energize, and empower our daily living. So we get more joy. And if you're always believing in Jesus, as we talk about pretty continually here uh, at Tabernacle, if we're trusting in Jesus again and again, day in, day out, you know, if the life of God and the soul of a human being is to trust in Jesus, then that means the other side of the coin is true too. That means we're always repenting. If we're always believing, we need to always be repenting. Repentance prepares our heart for more of Jesus. It makes room where things get kind of cluttered as we're falling in love with the world. We want to say no to that. We want to fall more in love with Jesus. So what, maybe this is a good time to ask, what are you repenting of? As, as we're trying to prepare our hearts for more of Jesus, that comes through repentance. When was the last time, you know, you did any like real repenting? <laughs> When's the last time you made your repentance audible? Uh, when's the last time you made your repentance visible? Uh, how are you re preparing for, for more of Jesus and his kingdom? And if you're, if, if if you're kind of like struggling with an answer to that question, it might mean that your repentance is, could go deeper, all right? And if you're struggling to have joy, and if you're not really kind of grasping what are we talking about here, it might mean that you have got something in common with what Richard Lovelace describes as sort of this, this problem with the contemporary church. He says, it's therefore not surprising that many congregations, which are full of regenerate people, are nevertheless not very alive spiritually since spiritual life demands repentance, or metanoia is the Greek word. A mind of repentance, and this requires more than an initial setting of the heart against the shallow expressions of sin, which the believer is aware of at that time of his conversion. So you're not going to have a lot of, of, of joy if you don't have a deepening repentance, a deepening clearing of the things that clutter our hearts and leave little room for the gospel. But the more that we're believing in Jesus, the more we're going to say yes to him and his kingdom and turn from the things that make our joy difficult.
what does this mean? What does this look like to believe in Jesus? Well, it's the same thing as, as John was saying. If, if, if it's the same coin and if repentance is on one side and belief is on the other, and if we need to make our repentance audible and visible, we need to make our faith in Jesus audible and visible. And we'll, and we'll have more joy. We'll, we'll prepare our hearts more and more for him as we make our faith audible. As you tell people about your belief in Jesus, scary to do that, I know. Um, it can be awkward at times. It can be really awkward, like the time that Mike Lindsay was reminding about, me about last night when we were doing some evangelism training once upon a time, and he goes into this home and shares the gospel outline with this family, and this family's got a roaming, roaming ferret, a little pet ferret that just kind of has free reign in the living room, and guess where the pet ferret went? Mike's sharing the gospel with this family, and the per- ferret goes right up his pants leg <laughs> in the middle of sharing about Jesus. How about that? But guess what? Mike was still making his faith in Jesus audible. And those people knew Mike loves Jesus. Do people know that you love Jesus? And do your coworkers know that you love Jesus? Do your neighbors know that you love Jesus? Do your teammates know that you love Jesus and your classmates and so on? When's the last time you told somebody about your relationship with Jesus, how he loves you and gave himself for you? And I know that there are whole ways of doing that can be very elaborate with lots of outlines and so on, but you can share your testimony. You have a testimony if you believe in Jesus. You have a story of how he's changing you. You can share that and just tell them about Jesus the Christ, Jesus who saved me from my sins, the Christ who's brought me into his kingdom to make me new. Here's how he's working on me. Here's where I need your grace and your forgiveness in the places where I'm, I'm not living as consistently as I'd like to, but I'd love your help. So you make your faith in Jesus audible and you make it visible, right? How do you make your faith visible? Well, people will see a change in you. They will see your faith because you can't really say that you know him and not be transformed by him. Doesn't this make sense? Don't you just know this intuitively? You can go to church. You can go to church all your life and never be changed. You can, you can read lots of the Bible and memorize lots of these verses and never really be changed. You can learn lots of doctrine. You can say yes and amen to all the creeds and catechisms that we do here you know, at Tabernacle and never really be changed. You can check boxes morally. You can check boxes spiritually, but never really be changed. But can anybody have a real encounter, a life-giving encounter with the resurrected Jesus and not be changed? People will see your faith in Jesus. Is he changing you? Are you rejoicing more in him? Jesus told his disciples, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Let me... Let me close us in prayer. Lord, thank you for preparing our hearts, for giving us repentance and for giving us faith, these gifts that come freely and generously from your hand and that remove all of the obstacles and give us access to your presence surely by your grace, completely because you are a forgiving God and that you love us even though we sin, even though we're sinners. 
So Lord, help us to repent. Help us to believe. Help us to keep repenting and keep believing, not because we're earning points with you, but because we're just responding to your invitation. We're, we're receiving this message, this good news that you've sent to us. And we pray that you would find us faithful to be sent out just as you sent the angels, uh, just as you sent John, just as you sent Jesus. Would you send us to be these spokespersons announcing good news of great joy? Lord, we pray uh, for our entire Tabernacle family uh, to this end, but in particular, we do want to remember uh, some of our, our, our families.